Hi, you are listening to Women Interviewing Other Women podcast from ArcelorMittal Europe Long Products segment. I am Valérie Benfares, Head of Talent Management for the Luxembourg Plants with strong focus on diversity and inclusion for the segment. Our guest today is Claire Salins, Non-Executive and Independent Director at ArcelorMittal. After a brilliant experience in the Ministry of Finance in Brazil and in different corporations such as Shell and Petrobras, Clarissa has acted as the Executive Director of the Brazilian Foundation for Sustainable Development as well as for the IBP, the Trade Association for Oil and Gas in Brazil. Clarissa is a founding partner of the consultancy Catavento, advising corporations in the areas of strategy, sustainability, energy transition, and climate change. Since June 2021, Clarissa has joined the board of directors of ArcelorMittal. Welcome, Clarissa, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Valérie, for inviting me to be one of the interviewees here at this fantastic podcast that you run. Let's start. Clarissa, you have graduated in economics and you have been able to work at the beginning of your career for the Ministry of Finance in Brazil. How did you get this opportunity and why did you decide to join the public sector? Thank you, Valérie, for starting this podcast with this question. I had, as you mentioned, the chance and the benefit to work for the Brazilian government at the Ministry of Finance while I was just quitting my master in the university. And I was lucky enough to have all my professors and coaches joining the government. By the time former President Cardozo was appointed the finance minister, and he invited my former professors and teachers to form the dream team by the time of economists uh, dedicated to ending hyperinflation that was by the time facing Brazil. So as a young economist, I joined them. When I joined the finance ministry, I was working for one year for Shell at the strategic planning area. But I did not hesitate one moment, really, to have this opportunity to help my country to face its largest problem and also by dedicating part of my time to the public sector. So it was a fantastic experience at the very early stage of my career. It's very inspiring, especially at the beginning of a career. Congratulations. And since then, you have also worked in private corporations and for non-governmental organizations. What is a key learning from each of these three sectors that you are still applying today during your leadership discussions? Having, you know, experienced those three different models of organization, for me, it is very clear that each one of them has a role to play. So when you think about the government, you think of the broader context, how to define public policies in order to attract investments, in order to really foment a context where the, the private sector can thrive. When thinking about a non-governmental organization or a think tank, then I think that the most valuable attribution is really to contribute to those public policies, but through an independent way of thinking and by dedicating the activity to one special theme. In my case, it was sustainable development and climate change, for instance. 
And then within the private sector, you can really make a difference through investing in research and development and advancing practical solutions. For me, at least, there's no question that the private sector is, is absolutely well positioned, really, to move faster, to take decisions faster, respecting good governance, of course. But it has the tools, the mechanisms, the funds that allow it really to advance mm. further. So it's really very interesting to realize that each kind of stakeholder has a role to play. And together, they all form, I would say, a better society and, and a better place, really, where things can really happen at the end of the day. Thank you, Clarissa. What personal skill do you think has helped you to move around public service, corporate and entrepreneurship? So I would say that the first personal skill is maybe the enthusiasm. I'm used to deal with issues I'm passionate about. And that's why I'm considered a very energetic person uh, mm -hmm. because I really enjoy what I do. So maybe the first characteristic would be really to enjoy what you're doing, whatever your role is. The second characteristic is really to dedicate yourself, to spend time, to learn really, to try to go in, into deeper analysis and to benefit also from experts. So talking to people, interacting, being able to listen to, to learn from others is also, I would say, absolutely key when you go for a more leadership position. And I would say that the third characteristic would be never be afraid of learning new skills. So, and to really look forward, understanding better the context of the company, the demands from different stakeholders in order not to be too focused and try to really broaden your understanding because mm -hmm. issues are complex. The world is uncertain and we should definitely be open-minded. Stay curious and keep learning all the time. Exactly, exactly. Clarissa, you serve in different corporate boards around the world. How do you get insights from these corporations regarding the level of well-being of their employees? This is a very relevant question, Valérie. I would say that especially after COVID, where we were able to really understand that the well-being of employees and of people in general is absolutely a critical aspect for corporations really to thrive, to perform. But basically, it's also an opportunity for corporations to showcase the value of their, their the people they count on. So at the board level, I usually ask the question if, you know, the management is able really to monitor the well-being of, of its employee and what kind of support does the management provide when needed to the employee. So I think that at least by raising the question, you point it out, you put into the agenda, and then you really uh, demonstrate that this is an important aspect for you as a board member. So that's mm -hmm. what I usually do. What advice would you give to women who would like to serve on a corporate board? Mm -hmm. So fortunately, we are able to see more women serving <laughs> on corporate boards nowadays. 
even in Brazil, my home country, where we rank, I would say, poorly when compared to European companies. But at least the trend is increasing. So that's the positive news. The advice that I would give is really be sure that you add value. Believe in yourself. Don't be afraid, <laughs> you know, of positioning yourself and stick to what you do better. So stick to what you really add value. Don't think that you, you have to say your word on all the topics that are raised. You might mm -hmm. not be, you know, well positioned to give your opinion or your thinking into all the questions, but you are certainly very well skilled and prepared to contribute to profoundly and deeply to some specific questions and do a good work. Speak up, you know, don't be shy, yes. speak up and you'll add value. Thanks a lot, Clarissa. As mentioned earlier, Clarissa has joined the ArcelorMittal Board of Directors one year ago. Having Clarissa as a non-executive and independent director is for any organization a valuable advantage. We are now going to exchange with Clarissa about managing the net zero transition. Clarissa, what was your main motivation to join the board of ArcelorMittal Group? So as you mentioned, Valérie, this was one year ago, and really I was absolutely pleased with the way that the executive management understood and positioned the company with regard to the energy transition as a leader in the decarbonization of the steel industry. So this was one of the major facts that attracted me to serve on the board. And of course, this resonated a lot with my professional interest and my skills as well. So I realized that first, the CEO and the chairman of the board, the lead independent director were all absolutely committed to positioning Asalamita as the leader in this front, and that they were also asking for additional skill such as mine, really, to contribute to this journey. So this was really a major factor. The other factor was also the footprint that ArcelorMittal has globally by being a global company, so with operations and the leadership role within Europe, of course, but also in the Americas, including Brazil, but also Canada, US, and uh, also not limited to Central Europe, but also to larger Europe, and now growing into India as well. So that this global presence is very interesting for someone like me to be involved with. You have been engaged on sustainability initiatives since years. What are the best and most innovative actions that ArcelorMittal Group is doing to support the narrative on decarbonization? I would say, Valérie, that there is a very consistent path towards net zero which as, at the same time acknowledges for the challenges because some technologies are not yet proven at scale. Some still requires, you know, public support in order to be competitive. But I would say that the most compelling uh, story is about the combination of all of them. The fact that ArcelorMittal is able really to deploy resources in different technological routes, while at the same time also advocating for 
leveling playing field rules at the global level, but especially in Europe. And also the fact that the company is able to invest substantially in innovative R&D. And not shy, really, of trying, of testing, mm-hmm. of innovating itself or through M&A or through investments in startups. So this broad span of initiatives is really something that, when combined together, tells a very compelling story and I would say consistent one towards 2030, 2035 and 2050 in our decarbonization strategy. Thanks a lot, Clarissa. The Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, called also CBAM, will be effective as of next year in the European Union. What will be the positive and negative impacts of the CBAM on competitiveness on the local and global industry, as well as from climate change perspective? I understand, Valérie, that the CBAM is a required mechanism to allow the European industry to remain competitive while putting a price on carbon. So it combines two aspects, uh, the economic competitiveness and the climate change aspect by putting a price on carbon. It's very positive from uh, those both aspects. Uh, and it allow uh, Europe to stand at the forefront of the climate change conversation while not losing its competitiveness in hard-to-abate industries. For, for industries that are not located in Europe, it is also, I would say, an incentive to think about putting a press on carbon as well either through carbon market mechanisms, either through other mechanisms that might be competitive. So at the end of the day, on a global perspective, I would say that it helps to incentivize countries to really elaborate and act towards advancing carbon pricing mechanisms. So it could be very positive. It could also be seen as a protectionism, but when I analyze the details of it, I understand that it is more of a mechanism that is leveling the playing field, including carbon pricing. So for climate change, it is very positive, and I hope that it could be an inspiration for other countries around the world, including my home country, Brazil. Do you think the Russia-Ukraine conflict will impact the implementation and effectiveness of these actions? So I would say, Valérie, is that in the short term, attention has shifted towards energy security, even though this might mean resuming consumption of coal and then implying into an increase in greenhouse gas emission for the current year, for 2022. So this is what we've been experiencing in Europe, in Germany, in Poland, in other countries, because energy security is the top priority. But the midterm or to even to the long term, what I would guess is just the opposite, would be an acceleration of innovation and investment in renewable energy in order for European countries uh, not to remain as dependent as they were Uh, on the Russian gas. 
So diversification of supply sources, for sure, mm -hmm. this would be, uh, and that's why uh, Germany, for instance, is, in, is investing in new LNG facil uh, facilities, but also investing in more hydrogen capacity, more energy efficiency, of course, to put demand also on this equation. It is absolutely critical. And on other sources of energy as well and other suppliers. So all in all, I do not expect that the climate leadership that comes out of Europe will be impacted in the mid to long term. Although, of course, in the short term, there's an economy of war. And when we are living into war times, then decisions has to consider that aspects are top priority. Thank you, Gleisa. What are your observations regarding the way our young generations are managing the net zero transition? So I have two boys, Valérie, aged 20 and 16. And what I see, first of all, is that the way of life that they want to be is pretty much connected to nature, less dependent on driving, I would say, especially on driving cars when public transportation is available, but otherwise other modes of transport as well. And really much more open-minded when it comes to diversity and inclusion, to lifestyle, the time that they want to spend working, what they imagine. They want to be a more balanced life approach, much more inclusive, more connected to nature, at least for now. So I expect that society under their leadership will be much more balanced that, than it is nowadays when it comes to work-life balance, but also, I would say, urban and nature balance as well. We are lucky enough to live in Rio, which is a city that really is surrounded by a very special and beautiful forest. So there's a sense of conservation as well and the need to respect both our green areas and our ocean because we are also by the ocean. So I hope that they are already good citizens and that they remain. Excellent. Many thanks, Clarissa. It was a real pleasure to interview you today and to learn from you. Thank you, Valérie, for this great opportunity to interact with you and all your listeners as well. Thank you. Thank you.